This is the Nomad Futurist Podcast, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and transformation. Connect with us, share your thoughts with us at nomadfuturist.com. Let's get this started. Here are Phil and Nabil. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Nomad Futurist. This is your co-host, Nabil Mahmood from Sonoma County, California. This is your co-host, Philip Koblenz from Montclair, New Jersey. And I'm the guest, Rob Coyle from Raleigh, North Carolina. Rob, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. So let's get to know you a little bit. Uh, tell us a little bit about Rob Coyle. Who is Rob? Rob Coyle is currently the Community Technical Program Manager at the Open Compute Project. I found the data center industry, I would say, through the generator yard about 10 years ago, and I haven't looked back. All right. So let's step back in time, Rob. Uh, tell us a little bit about your family, siblings. Yeah, I come from a family of tradespeople. My brother, who's younger than me, is a carpenter. Our father is a carpenter, and our grandfather is a carpenter. And we're surrounded by a bunch of tradespeople back in the 80s and 90s in the Chicagoland area. So you were born in Chicago then? I was. That's quite a move to move to Raleigh, North Carolina. What drove that move? How'd you end up in a little bit of a tech capital of the East Coast? It is. We are this micro, I think, sleeping giant, at least at that time was, and maybe now it's not so sleepy. But uh, I started in the aviation industry in Chicago. That was the early days of my career. And then we had the recession. 2008 timeframe and the airlines all perked their airplanes and didn't need a lot of people with my skills anymore. And so at the same time, uh, my wife was pursuing an opportunity in academia and relocated us to Raleigh, North Carolina, where we were supposed to be here for a temporary stint of maybe two years and we'll go back. And just about 13 years later or so, uh, we're still here and set in roots. When you were growing up, did you think you were going to be a carpenter since you had so many carpenters? I think I always had the inkling that I was going to build something. I'm not a skilled carpenter, I would say. Maybe it's good that I didn't. What is it, an unskilled carpenter? Is that a whittler? Yeah, I think it's patience and really patience mostly, right? And practice. And maybe I don't have that as much as my family does. And were you interested in technology at all? What drove the interest in aviation? Yeah, so someone else coined it for me. But I'm a systems guy. I, I think electrical is probably my strongest suit. But I've always had a passion for technology uh, from a really young age. I remember our first computer. And my family was not into technology in this way. As tradespeople, it's get out there and do stuff and build stuff. And at that time, computers were really foreign to that concept, right? What we have today with this infrastructure and building, that wasn't really the mindset then. So I had some old work machine that was a Commodore 64 that was probably pulled out of some office building in a demolition project. And they were like, here's a cathode ray tube, black and white TV with an adapter and this keyboard thing. Give it to the kid, let him figure it. And I had the knack. And from there, I've been playing with computers ever since. And so then being in the aviation industry, eventually these kind of systems and passion for technology and this I guess, born with desire to build something, pulled me into the data center industry. What did you do How in, did, uh, in aviation? What was that initial role? As a family of direct doers, it was, what's your job going to be? What's the service you're going to do? 
And so that pulled me towards pilot. I have this desire for systems. I have a, a passion to do something, leverage what you've been given, right? Either an opportunity or desire, just push it to the max. So that was like one of the hardest things I thought I could do. So that's where I started. And then when I was there, it seemed like, well, what if, as you get older, you have a problem with your heart or your eyes, or do you want to put all your eggs in one basket? You could also do the mechanics side. And uh, so I double majored in school and I started working on aircraft at the same time and then got drawn back into my technology passions and really focused on the avionics part of the business, right? At that time, we're going from steam gauges and mechanical things in airplanes over to new glass cockpits, right? With computers and digital displays, things like that. You're telling me that you had steam gauges in 2002 when you went to get your degree. That's what they called them steam gauges, even though they were probably electrically or mechanically driven. But the aviation industry was very, very slow. All right. That certainly makes us sound much better. You mentioned you were kind of sort of like put into that place of the aviation sector. What was the driving factor behind it out of curiosity? You have probably had a lot of other opportunities potentially. I think my grandfather had a passion for aviation. He was a Marine and serviced on the flight line a lot. And so him and I shared a passion of looking at the sky and really interested in aviation. And I still am very interested in aviation today. And so that was the direction. And then I think I didn't learn it until after I had done a bunch of different things, but I do like systems. I like electrical and mechanical and information systems working together. And those all exist in lots of industries, definitely aviation. And so it still fits. Right? I'm a systems guy and that, that carries over in the data center space very well. Do you still fly? No, I haven't flown in some years, but I do have my, still my aviation books and my flight log there. So as my kids get a little older and maybe my wife feels a little more comfortable with it, we'll probably bring aviation back into the family as a hobby. Yeah, that's certainly very exciting. It's like one of the things on my radar to do, but unfortunately with my health condition and all the scares, I don't think it's a very good thing for me to pursue. All right, let's talk probably, about- Probably not the best place to have a, uh, a another heart attack in the uh, in the cockpit. We don't, it's, yeah. it's mission critical there too, guys. <laughs> exactly. All right, so from aviation and avionics to the yard, what were you thinking? How uh, did you end up doing so? Necessity, right, is really where we're at. It's, it's 2008. I'm only a couple years of experience in my career. I've done a bunch of different things. I bounced around a lot of things. Just finding work, right? Being relocated. Aviation industry is completely shut down. They raised the retirement age of pilots by five years at this point. So now there's no flow of new blood into the AV as a pilot or anything, right? Those guys are sticking around because their 401ks are in the dump. And so they can't afford to retire. They've been given an extra five years to hang out. So they do, and they don't open any seats. So everybody in the aviation industry and a lot of my peers the same age were doing all sorts of different things, right? From sales or just anything, right? To pay the bills. And so doing that and other people knowing that we had some good friends that were working in the power generation space through Canbuilder. And they said, well, mechanics and electrical and a little bit. And I said, yeah. And he goes, well, these don't move. They stay in the same place. So this will be a lot easier than aircraft for you. 
And so I was really invited in into the power generation space. And I started with a Caterpillar dealer here in North Carolina. And so that was great. So I learned a bit of more of the engineering side. And I was sent out as the new guy to three jobs that I remember very distinctly. But one was at a mine for crushing rock. And the other was a regional hospital in a very rural North Carolina site. And the other was a Cisco data center in Raleigh Triangle Park, Cisco 5. And after going to those sites, I said, if there's ever a data center project, I'll take that one. And nobody else wanted those jobs. That was the one they didn't want to go to. And why was that? At the time, the feedback I remember getting is, those data center guys are so picky about how things are done, how the labels are turned on the cables, how the wires are twisted in, and all this redundancy. And why do we have to have two battery chargers on this generator? And that stuff was so interesting to me that I was like, that's, I love those problems. The rocks never complain. That's right. And no one ever goes, <laughs> looks at it. And if it breaks, who cares? Someone will fix, they'll roll a truck and someone will go fix it later. So I guess that's the same thing in the medical sector as well, potentially. The patients well, yeah, can't complain. Just, but maybe it was the environment that I wasn't thrilled about. I still but don't go to the doctor as much as I should. Maybe and that's the a, people. And the people. The people are weird. Data center people are weird. Especially back then. It's like, God. Oh, oh, yeah. Still today. Gosh, we're weird. We're a weird bunch. So you have some exposure, obviously, to the data center world. Obviously, it makes total sense how the generator world kind of dovetails and makes the introduction into the data center world. How did your career progress from being in the generator space to that and getting more involved in the data center world? I was doing project management, sales project management, mostly at that point. And I had hired this little company that was here in the Raleigh area. And they were building... What year is this? Give me a time. This is 10 years ago. So we're in 2013 era, right? 2015, maybe. And I'm looking to grow out of the generator yard, right? I'm looking towards to move. I have this passion for technology. I understand how the front end works a little bit. I'm learning as I go. And so I'm just trying to get closer to the rack and spend less time in the generator yard and maybe a little more time in the building. And especially in North Carolina in the summer, right? We're still cooling data centers pretty cold at that point. And, um, so I found this company that was integrating electrical systems. And so this is high to voltage and low voltage integration onto skids and uh, stand up power. So those things seem interesting to me. And so I worked on a project with them. It was very interesting. We're really starting to modularize the infrastructure pieces at this point, instead of building on site, putting them on these big steel structures, or we're putting them in these containers. And I was like, man, that's interesting. And I understand the problems around construction a bit from my upbringing. And I'm working to try and get closer to the data center. So I asked if they needed some help and if I could join them over there. And that's how we got started at PCX in North Carolina. Makes a lot of sense. And then thereafter, you ended up with district controls. Yeah. So then I guess maybe that's still a little bit of the avionics piece, right? Now I want to move into smaller wires. Instead of just moving the power around, now we want to control the equipment, right? Uh, monitor electrical, control HVAC systems. And in the background, I'm also starting to get involved with the Open Compute Project at this point, where I'm starting to see the value of sharing and collaborating in this open nature. And DisTech Controls was built 
on the back of very open principle, right? That's something they go to market with very strong. So I wanted to leverage that a little more directly as well. So it sounds like you have uh, this career path and obviously there are certain things you have to, you went to the generator yard because you need to pay the bills because there are no pilots being hired. But it sounds like you're kind of looking at the progression of your career and the way you're describing it, it sounds like you kind of saw enough uh, in, in what you're doing now and you want to evolve in this way. Is that the way you were thinking about it at the time or was it more opportunistic? Or how, how did how did you see the, the progression of your career? Were you bored? Were you not bored and you just wanted to do something different? Was it about money? What was the driving factor? Yeah, I think early, right, it was definitely money plays a role in decisions, right? Especially at the time I'm a young dad just starting a family. And another part of it is that I feel like I'm starting to get bored, right? In a combination of the two. Or if I'm not earning and I'm not learning, Let's fix at least one of those. And so that's always been driving me a bit. We've got the tagline for the podcast, if I'm not earning or learning. Right. Yeah. It's, it's either that or the beginning yeah. of an awesome rap. Yeah, exactly. You mentioned, Rob, about the human capital. Again, that seems to be a common denominator across a lot of the industries. You mentioned briefly about oversaturation of these resources and extending the life of the capital that already is in the space, whereby... They're not letting a lot of young people in or new talent in. Now, the aviation industry, and that's not necessarily our subject matter here, but just out of curiosity, 15 years from after you left to now, the aviation industry seems to be struggling. They don't have enough resources and people coming into that space. What are your thoughts on that? I get calls from friends that have been tagged with a finder's fee, right? So they got a bounty out for people with aviation experience, right? Piloting hours or experience working on aircraft. Come on, come in the aviation industry, right? Come back. And it's a challenge to watch an industry be overloaded, have too much human capital and capacity available to it, and it doesn't need it, and watch it swing. And I think people even before me, when I was in the aviation industry, talked about these very long cycles. There's a heyday of it, and then there's struggle. And most people work in the aviation industry because they love it, not because uh, of financial reasons or others. There's a lot of struggle in that industry um, because I don't think it responds as quickly to uh, people's needs and the market's needs. There's this lagging indicator that creates a lot of pain, I think, for people. So putting that in perspective and based on your experiences thus far, knowing what Nomad Futurist is doing, where do you think we are headed? And from your point of view, what steps do we need to take to address those challenges that have to address the human capital deficit that we are getting ready for? One thing that I'm starting to see as we see more uh, new faces in the industry is that there's such a diversity in opportunity within the data center industry, right? The data center industry has so much to offer all sorts of different skills from marketing and sales from electrical, mechanical, I think the perception of the data center industry that remains and is one that I had was what does a person look like and what skills do they have to work in the data center industry? And I've learned that that couldn't be further from the truth. I've met so many different people with so many different jobs that I didn't even know existed in the data center industry and some that are brand new that didn't exist when I joined 10 years ago that exist today. And that 
we need to share those stories and those opportunities that just because you don't want to work on computers or work on generators, that you can't work in the data center industry. And that's just not true. So if you had to pinpoint something that you have seen, like you came from, I think all of us to a certain extent of our generation fell into this and nobody grew up thinking, I want to be in the data center industry because it didn't exist. But if there's something you've seen from that move from aviation to generator and just like kind of finding the, the data center industry that you wish you had known early on, like somebody had told you about it and, and could have accelerated this path for you. What is, is it? Is it that, that you don't have to be like a computer guy to come into the data center industry? Or is there something else you've learned that you wish like you could tell all the kids out there to get them excited about it that they might not see from the outside? Yeah, those, those are two pieces. I think the one is that there's so many different jobs, right? And, and whatever your passions might be, there's probably a place for you in the data center industry. If you're inclined to try it, try it. I think the skills and experience you have in this industry translate to a lot of different places. But the biggest mistake that I made when I joined this industry is assuming that everybody had everything already figured out. That I was surrounded by all these experts that knew exactly how all this was going to be built and how we were going to use it. And I was trying to fit in and trying to imitate what was already being done. Oh, I got to do it this way. And that, that's what success looks like. And that's how it has to be done. And, and I spent too much time pretending and hiding, right? Just trying to get along. And when it, my eyes really opened up and said, okay, maybe all of us are having success and maybe we're all very busy and that's a good thing. But we don't have it figured out. We're trying things and that's what's working. And the sooner I started trying things and asking questions and being more curious and saying, why do we do it that way? That's where the opportunity really opened up. And that's where I started having a lot more fun. So now you've touched multiple elements of the industry, right? So from the yard into designing modular containerized data centers to controls, and you've had a global play. How did you end up at Open Compute? Uh, which is again, a nonprofit, a foundation, uh, what drove that interest and what do you have going on from being extremely calculated uh, and thoughtful that individual that you are, what were those decision points to say, okay, I'm going to leave the real practical uh, deployments in the field to being more theoretical and being on the back end and exploring and identifying strategies and technical processes and so on and so forth. What was that thought process like? I felt that I had something to offer being in a couple of different places in the industry and seeing it from a couple of different seats, kind of from the facility side. And it wasn't an easy decision. I've had great experiences at all the companies that I worked for in the data center industry. And they've served me in ways in the time that was really fortunate. And even moving from disk tech controls was really hard because I'd been there just a few years. I really enjoyed the people that I worked with and things were progressing really great. And we're, we were making great inroads and doing good things. But the open compute project was an opportunity that was just too unique to pass up and stay a traditional path. I, I saw the opportunity to, to take my experience in those different roles and apply it to this, like you said, more theoretical, more backend, more understanding at a broader view and a global scale. The open compute project started really in the server market and we have a lot of expertise in that area. And I thought that I could bring a different experience and that would bring value to the organization. And also 
I've been working in that space for five years. I have a lot of friends that have done a lot of great things within the Open Compute Project as a volunteer and just being in that ecosystem. So making it my full-time job felt fairly comfortable because a lot of these people were my friends and I've got to see a lot of the success that they've had and a lot of the fun they're having. And I took a lot of interest in growing that and hopefully helping more people have just as much success as them. So as a community technical program manager, what are some of your responsibility tasks that you could open to share? Yeah, we're open, right? The, one of the best things is, and I get that question somewhat is, well, well, what can you share with me? Because the data center industry is very secretive, right? In certain ways, we have IP, we have to protect, we have clients, we have to protect. That is very important. In our ecosystem, out there at kind of more the innovative incubator stage, very leading innovation space, we openly share that. And that's been a fun change too, right? As a set of using code words like, a company that has you know, the big G letter or the one that does that giant social network, we're able to speak a little more freely about those things. But my day-to-day is really centered around the contributions that our member companies bring out into the open. So they have a need and a problem to solve, and they work with the vendor community and their peers around these different innovations that they want to share. And we have tenants and we have licensing processes that makes sure that everybody's protected in that journey in taking an innovation and an idea and bringing it all the way to a product that can be you know, sold to the marketplace. So I follow that journey from problem and innovation all the way through product from a technical perspective. Well, gotta be a very exciting uh, position to be in. You get to touch all the, the new gadgets and play around with the new concepts, I bet. I've always been, when there's an opportunity to like have a new gadget or see what's out next, like I had a smartphone as early as I possibly could. I kind of jump out there and say, I'll try it. I'll be the one to suffer the, the bugs. Right. Sure. And so being in a room with some of these experts that are top of their class, right? Working on things that are just where the best ideas win. I love learning and I love being in all these different spaces and we operate in all these different areas of the data center space from liquid pooling to chiplets and storage and to learn from these people is a gift and very fortunate. In the couple of years you've been there, what's the coolest thing you've touched before we might've seen it or something we haven't even seen yet that you know is on the horizon that given your openness as an organization, you can share that you think will be commonly used or maybe is commonly used, but you got to see it earlier. The standardization, like seeing just the servers themselves, where they've started to strip away unnecessary parts and pieces, right? Where we've gotten away from plastic panels and LED lights and have made things easier to use and uh, using less tools and things like that, right? Just increasing the efficiency and starting to see those changes, not only on OCP recognized hardware, but to kind of see that bleed into the other proprietary spaces. That's a good feeling because we're like, that's a good idea. They don't have to do that, but they saw it and they saw the value and now we're seeing it kind of spread out. So that's really neat. And then everything that's happening in new cooling methods today, I think that's the thing we're going to see scale over the next couple of years. That's really going to, everybody's going to have thing very, very visible on how that changes. You have some like immersion cooling in your kitchen that you're using to like flash freeze uh, peas or something that I don't know. No, <laughs> we have a big event coming up next month. So I'll see what samples and demos I can get away. Like, let me borrow that. 
what can we do with that at home? I think we'll have some nomad futurists there, right? So hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll be able to grab some of that as well. What is the experience like? I've always wondered this. Obviously, we have a 501c3 nonprofit that we just started. We're fairly new to the nonprofit space. What is the dynamic, just personally, you worked for these companies and obviously you were in a position where you wanted to service your clients and the clients were paying and everybody's goal is to impact success for the organization and impact the bottom line. How has your thought process changed or what is the experience like now going from the for-profit world to the nonprofit world where you have these organizations that you're supporting, but not necessarily with that same kind of profit mentality? That's a great question. We don't have those same goals as a foundation, right? Our responsibility is to the tenants in our mission of taking for scale innovation and making it available for everyone. That's our mission. The way we do that is we help our member companies be successful. And for being on that side and understanding that, keeping the lights on, making a profit, selling something, that's part of success for them, right? In some cases, that defines success for those companies, right? So for us, if we're able to understand what success looks like for those member companies, and we can take that innovation and help them use our community and use the tools we have to share that innovation and make efficient, economical, sustainable compute available for more people, then we all win. And so that's been really fun to understand where they are and then use our resources as a community to help them do it in a better way. And is there ever that feeling that because you have the you kind of member organizations, support organizations, and you guys are kind of essentially the mediator between the hardware companies and these other companies, is there ever a sense where you represent those companies' interests and it doesn't feel like there's some preconceived thing that you're trying to force on the hardware operators for the benefit of your supporting organizations, like the Googles and the Microsofts want something and you're trying to force that onto the hardware manufacturers or is it a much more kind of friendly environment between the two where you guys are just kind of sharing the various elements of the hardware industry that benefit your member organizations and vice versa? Yeah, I, I think the proof's in the pudding. If I can capture kind of what you said is that I've seen it in two different ways. So for-profit proprietary side of the business, that's how it is always. Our customers are forcing us to try to do something, right? They have an idea of what they need to have happen. And as a vendor, and especially as a, a manufacturer or product company, those companies know their product really well. And so you're trying to get those aligned. That end user has a goal. They may need your product to do it. And that's always the case. So now to move it over into an open ecosystem, you can speak more freely and more openly about what does success look like? What solutions do we need in, in place? And it doesn't have to be just from one vendor, right? So now I don't have to be uh, so protective over my product that is the best way to do this. We can openly share like, okay, what's the best way to get there from an efficient way, from a sustainable way, from an efficient in cost, labor hours, uh, material usage, yeah, that's all on the table. And I understand the perception of the hyperscalers having the leverage, but I would say that in our ecosystem, it's less than in a proprietary closed relationship because the community is just as much reliant on them as they are the community. So it has to work together. What are some of the core initiatives that OCP is working on? or focused on the very near future? Our most, we operate on five 
key tenants, right? And that's how all contributions and all work that occurs within the open compute project and all of our volunteer members that work, that work comes through and it is on efficiency, scale, openness, impact. And our most recent tenant is sustainability. And I think sustainability has been something that's always been very important to our member companies, both the end users and the vendors. And so we've always been working toward that. But we just this last year, we created this core tenant so that all the work must answer to sustainability. And how is their solution more sustainable than everything else? And we're now just a year later really starting to see that work come forward. So that's been really exciting. From a technology perspective, we're seeing cooling, as we mentioned, not only immersion cooling, but directed chip and directed chip in single phase and two phase. That's really cutting edge stuff, right? So that's the need to see. And then on closer to the silicon is the chiplet ODSA or the open chiplet economy space where we're working on accelerator chips, right? In a modular fashion, just like you would a server where you need different types of components to do different jobs. We're doing that all the way at the chip level today to make a chip be more efficient at a specific job. And it has a lot to do with the AI space and what we're seeing at scale today. So those are really exciting for me. What are some of the core challenges in the next three to five years that we need to start paying a little bit more attention? You mentioned sustainability as one of the core focuses for OCP. In your personal opinion, besides sustainability, what are some of the core items that we need to start focusing on and start trying to put a strategy towards whereby it doesn't end up being a total bust? We can't take our eye off the bull. So we've, before I think sustainability became such front of voice, maybe it's been front of mind for some, maybe it's been part of a lot more PR lately is something we talked about a little earlier and it's, that's the human capital piece, right? We had a labor shortage in this industry going into the pandemic in ways it's only gotten worse. We've seen the largest data center construction projects get announced the first half of this year. There's not more people to go do those jobs. And there's not more skill available to go do those jobs. So this problem of labor shortage isn't just going to be a couple quarters or a couple of years. I expect it to stick around for the next 10 years or more. And the challenge is, is not only do you have enough people to come into the space to do the jobs, but that's one thing, right? To have the labor hours available. Those who are leaving our industry are leaving with 40 years of experience, experiential knowledge that they're leaving with. So even if you had a one-to-one, which we're far from it, right? But we're only bringing people into the industry at a fraction of the retirement, right? And that goes from the trade, that goes from the IT space, across the board. They're leaving with their experience. So we need those lessons and we need to capture those lessons. And our ecosystem allows a little bit of that to happen. But I think a lot more other organizations outside our space need to think about how do we keep that knowledge and that experience and pass it to the next generation? while we try and build up that group that's coming into the space. Only there was a foundation that had that as its core mission. Only if there was a place. Uh, Only, if only there was a place. But yes, I I don't think anybody could articulate like the nomad futurist mission better than you just did. Uh, I think the spec that we're giving is what, 40% of this industry has been in it for 20 years or more. So the retirements are only going to accelerate. And I think it's incumbent upon us. We're such a hidden industry in general, because everybody knows that they use all of these devices, but they're not really given the tools to understand how it all works. So it's just like making people aware that while 
there's a scary AI is going to disrupt a lot of industries out there. That disruption comes with massive opportunity in, in an industry like ours that is growing exponentially. I had one question back on the AI element, which is one of the things that's awesome about the idea of open compute is that you're kind of standardizing and not beholden to a single hardware provider or vendor, and you're opening up an entire ecosystem to see how you can solve the existing problems of your member companies and the hyperscalers, et cetera. With AI, you hear, and the stock market follows this trend where you, it is just NVIDIA, 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 NVIDIA. There is a shortage of NVIDIA. Everything is tied to NVIDIA. It's all the GPUs. And that is what is enabling AI in general. Is that a problem? Well, it's, it's certainly a problem today, right? And we're watching the money follow and we're watching the demand. And I think for some pretty reputable sources, we're seeing demand outstrip supply 10 to one today. And let's say we're on a hype cycle and, and maybe some of this isn't totally real. Even if you were to cut that in half or a quarter, that's still a massive problem with supply and demand. And from what I understand about the reasons behind the NVIDIA demand is that a lot of the programming and languages that are used run best on the silicon they were designed for. But I think that's going to change. I heard uh, Dean Nelson say just this last week at a conference we were at together is this is an 80-20 problem. And 20% of the problem is that the latest and greatest, most high performance is going to run on that NVIDIA stuff. It's going to be the H100s. It's going to be just the most bleeding edge stuff. But there's a lot of AI work to be done in our ecosystem. And not all of it has to be done as quickly or as precisely. And so that other 80%, there's a lot to be done there. And I think we're starting to see a lot of open source tools on the software side that will translate into being able to use a much broader spectrum of hardware, including not only different GPUs, but even CPUs and other resources that will allow things that are, don't need to take uh, as short of time uh, where we can batch process and, and do other things like that to enable tons of the hardware that already exists. So we don't have to just be creating new and building and building and building we can leverage a lot of embodied resources that are already out there. Yeah, I think it's a, a, an incredibly prescient point. And, and just the, the notion that obviously there's a supply chain issue, but beyond the supply chain issue, all of the eggs in a singular basket is a little bit, uh, a lot of power to put in the hands of a single corporation. No, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think markets adjust, right? So the market won't allow that for much longer. I think there's enough resources and money being pushed around more importantly, so much more opportunity that exists out there that people will find other ways. And Cut off the presence. Yeah. Philip Coldwell starts a company named MVIDIA to disrupt the monopoly known as NVIDIA. Perfect. Let me... We're we're only eight months into this. So to say that it's an NVIDIA game and that's how it's going to be for the end of time, I think would be very short-sighted. No question. Yeah. Rob, you've had a very interesting career and you're just starting up. What's next for you? Much like we're asking ourselves about AI, what's next? It's hard to say, right? For me, it's about finding how I can be more resourceful to other people in the industry. I feel very fortunate. And so I don't know what job that entails necessarily. I'm very happy at the Open Compute Project. I'm very excited about what we're going to do over the next few years. Um, but for me, it's about learning more and being more resourceful to help people within our industry and take the advantages that I have been given over the last two years or 10 years and this opportunity to participate 
and find an industry that I truly passionately love is what it's all about for me now. Knowing what you know today, and I've, having gone through this series of trials and tribulations and moving industries, what would you tell the run the rock coil if given the opportunity to start all over again? Two things. One, I'm going to take it from Ted Lasso and say, stay curious. The other thing is don't put all your eggs in one basket, right? Try lots of different things. And if something doesn't feel right, there's opportunities other places. And especially earlier in your career, move around and try a lot of new things. And maybe you'll find the thing that really feels like it was meant for you or that you feel like you're really matched for like I have. And you'll find that a lot quicker. And that's what I would hope for someone or a young Rob Coil. Wonderful. Thank you so much for taking time to join us today. This has been absolutely phenomenal. Great to get to know a lot more about you now. And looking forward to partnering up with OCP and see you at the OCP Summit in a couple of weeks. Yeah, see you guys. We're excited to have you at the Global Summit in San Jose. And this has been a lot of fun. Thank you both so much. Thank you. This has been great. Nothing lasts forever. Markets will come back, currencies will rebound, businesses will go on, and we will all move on. That could happen next week, next month, or next year. At Nomad Futures, we are confident that those who prepare rather than panic will come out of this stronger. Thank you for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurist. Check us online at nomadfuturist.org. And thank you for listening and subscribing, as well as your continued support.